Hello and welcome to episode six of the Abominable Dr. Welsh podcast. It is Friday, October the 20th, and I'm back after a two-week break. I did intend to have an episode for Friday the 13th. It certainly would have been suitable, but unfortunately, I did not have access to the podcast studio. But I'm back and we'll hopefully have one last episode before the end of the month that'll come out on October the 27th. For this week's episode, I'm focusing on the Blair Witch Project. Uh, Blair Witch Project was released in the summer of 1999. Uh, became something of, of a box office sensation. Largely today, credit it with maybe not the creation of the found footage subgenre, but certainly popularizing the concept of found footage, making it accessible to mainstream audiences. It's not without its detractors. So when it was released, critics loved it. It made a lot of money. I think initially it was the most financially success, successful independent film at the time. It's still considered today one of the most successful box office independent movies of all time. Uh, it does have its detractors, as I noted. It's somewhat of a divisive film. There are people who really love it, uh, like myself, and there are those that absolutely can't stand it. Amongst uh, the complaints that oftentimes I hear is they people hate the shaky cam, they think it's a bit too slow, and people complain that they don't see anything in the movie. Notwithstanding these criticisms, even if you don't like the, the Blair Witch Project, there is absolutely no denying that it has had a huge impact on horror movies in general and found footage specifically. And that's really going to be the focus of this week's podcast episode. What is it about the Blair Witch Project that has made it stand the test of time? That is, in fact, in my opinion, it's earned its, its status as a classic horror movie of the genre. It's the kind of movie that I would revisit uh, this time of year when thinking about what movies I want to watch for Halloween. I also want to take a look very briefly at the back half of the podcast episode where the franchise really can go after two failed sequel attempts. Uh, but without further ado, let's just dive right into it. movies offer an advantage for studios, particularly larger studios. It's that they don't cost a lot of money to make. And if, if you approach it right from a budget perspective, they really should be a license to, to print money in most cases. Bloomhouse Productions has kind of perfected the model of high concept, low budget. Uh, I talked earlier, I think in episode three of the podcast about Renfield, which was released earlier this year with Nicolas Cage and Nicholas Holt. There was a movie that was going to have a limited audience just based on subject matter and the way in which it was filmed. But the production budget, I think, was somewhere just north of $60 million. Uh, the, that movie was never going to make north of $60 million at the domestic box office and probably even taking in global box office revenue into account as well. And, and horror movies, just they don't need that kind of budget. And if they're marketed properly, uh, the, again, the, the, most horror films should have plenty of opportunity to succeed. One of the things that makes the Blair Witch Project stand out even today, and it's been probably about, what, 24, just over 24 years since it was released, is that it offered, in my opinion, a master's class in marketing for, for filmmakers. So before YouTube or Twitter, uh, the Blair Witch Project, what I would suggest is it laid the foundation for what it would eventually mean to go viral. Today, we, we all know what that means. In 1999, that term did, was not a thing, uh, not in terms of marketing. 
To date, only a handful of movies made before or after Blair Witch have been marketed as effectively. By the time it was released in theaters, and this would have been back in July of 1999, this little independent horror film had become must-see viewing. So I can recall seeing the commercials on television. I was living in Ottawa at the time in a small, very hot apartment in downtown Ottawa. My sister's a horror movie fan. I had a couple of friends that I was going to school with who were also into horror movies. We were talking about this movie that we were seeing these commercials for. It was it was must-see viewing. Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez had created a full mytho mythology for the movie before even preparing a short screenplay treatment. And that, that mythology was brilliantly distilled into a website that treated this mythology as actual events. And again, in 1999, the internet definitely was uh, more active. There was a lot more content. So I can recall... A few years earlier, working at a video store, uh, this would have been maybe 1994. And, you know, at that time, as a university student, for example, I wasn't using email. I was aware there was something called the internet and didn't really use it. And in fact, one of the the first things that attracted me or kind of motivated me to look at this thing called the internet was a movie called Stargate, which I believe is one of the, if not one of the the first the first movie to have its own full website for the film. I can remember going to the website for the Blair Witch Project, and it was amazing the amount of effort and work they put into really kind of, again, playing out this idea that this was based on a real missing person's case, uh, and that this was, you know, for example, missing person photos. Uh, the website had fake missing person reports. They had police documents, wit uh, witness statements. Uh, they had newsreel footage. Even the movie's IMDb page at the time listed the three principal actors as missing. <laughs> so at the time, no one had done marketing like that for the Blur Witch Project. Today, the, that kind of marketing obviously wouldn't work because we're a lot more, well, the, the concept of disinformation and misinformation over the last several years is something that's entered kind of popular lexicon, right? But in 1999, people weren't quite as skeptical uh, about what was on the internet. Uh, diehard horror fans may even recall the Curse of the Blair Witch. Prior to the movie's release, the Sci-Fi Channel aired this mockumentary. And again, the idea of a mockumentary, there were some that existed, but it certainly wasn't something that was commonplace knowledge for, for the average film goer. But they aired this mockumentary with uh, a lot of fanfare, and somehow Mirak and Sanchez has convinced people that the actors disappeared investigating the Blair Witch legend. And in 1999, the found footage subgenre just wasn't a thing. The faux documentary approach convinced quite a few viewers that were watching that this was real footage assembled from recovered cameras. Uh, you could still find, actually, I believe Tubi over the last month or so has added the Curse of the Blur Witch documentary today. And it's, if nothing else, it's kind of, an, especially for people, let's say maybe who are film historians, it's kind of an interesting look back at maybe on one hand how naive uh, audiences were at the time. Uh, again, I think it would be a lot more difficult to pull something off like that today. But in 1999, in July of 1999, this was a pretty fresh approach to marketing. So really, by the time the movie was hitting theaters, the kind of commercials they were airing was, was more or less encouraging people to kind of jump on a train that was kind of already leaving the station. That is, a lot of the advertising I, I saw on television wasn't about go see this movie that's coming out soon. It kind of was framed more in the in the lines of this is a hot movie and, and you're missing out if you don't go see it yet because people already had a lot of familiarity built up with very, very little traditional marketing. 
in addition to its uh, kind of almost foreseen or foreshadowing what viral marketing was going to look like several years down the road, one of the other kind of significant impacting uh, factors of the Blood Witch Project, whether you like the movie or not, is the role it played in popularizing and kind of normalizing found footage as a legitimate subgenre in the, in, in, among horror movies. Uh, no, it's not the first real found footage movie. Horror purists will quite rightly point out that Cannibal Holocaust was the first true found footage horror film, and they're not wrong again. Uh, really, what I would point out is that probably not very many people have seen Cannibal Holocaust cannibal holocaust so as someone who grew up in the 80s and the 90s spent a lot of time you know when i was younger when your parents would take you to the video store i always kind of you know drifted off into the horror section would check out uh usually they were lined along the top two shelves i don't recall ever seeing it as a kid growing up the uh vhs cassette cover for cannibal holocaust certainly don't recall seeing it uh, drifting through independent video stores or even bigger chains like jumbo or, or blockbuster uh, whether or not it's because it was banned or because uh, larger uh, video store chains didn't feel it was worth investing in getting the, the point is cannibal holocaust was not a mainstream movie that has a lot of uh, popular kind of there's not a lot of public knowledge about it outside of what I would call older diehard horror movie fans. Uh, so yes, that controversial exploitation movie certainly had an influence on the Blair Witch Project, yet Myrick and Sanchez deserve a lot of credit for popularizing the format amongst mainstream audiences. So prior to the Blair Witch Project, audiences probably had never seen a movie filmed with handheld cameras. So in the night, like I said, in the 1990s, Cannibal Holocaust was not a movie you could find, readily find available in video stores. So as a result, for the average filmgoer, and I would argue even probably more casual horror movie fans, certainly younger horror movie fans, when The Blair Witch Project came out that summer of 1999, it felt different from other horror movies. It was kind of revolutionary. So what I think I would argue is The Blair Witch Project really deserves credit for better or worse, for carving out a brand new horror subgenre. Several years later, yes, the Paranormal Activity franchise uh, would solidify found footage as a viable financial direction for low-budget horror filmmaking. I would argue that the impact of Paranormal Activity was to, to take that viral marketing approach that was done with the Blair Witch Project, fine-tune it, alter it a bit, but still kind of use something similar, but it also showed studios that, hey, this movie worked in 1999. Here's another movie that, and at that time, when Paranormal Activity was released, the kind of annual October Halloween tradition for you know, that was in the Cineplex was the release of a Saw sequel. And it was Paranormal Activity that kind of supplanted the Saw franchise as the new kind of October tradition for people who wanted to go out and watch a scary movie for Halloween. And the fact that it was a found footage movie really probably in the eyes of a lot of producers, the kind of people who are green lighting uh, the production of movies or trying to decide what independent films to kind of scoop up and add to their release schedule, Par Paranormal Activity deserves a lot of credit for kind of solidifying or confirming that this is an approach to filmmaking that mainstream audiences will pay money to go and see. But Blair Witch Project really is the movie that gets the ball rolling and gets things started. Um, and unlike many other found footage movies, the Blair Witch Project actually offers something of a rationale for employing the actual device of using a handheld camera that is having characters within a film feel like that there is a necessity of filming the stuff that you are seeing happen on screen, which is what I want to talk about in the next segment of this episode of the podcast. 
one thing I want to come back to that I, I just touched on, but I, I didn't quite finish my thought and an idea just popped in my head. So the, you know, I touched on the idea that one of the common criticisms of found footage in general is that oftentimes the movies don't really explain very well why anyone would keep filming amidst impending doom. And I suggest that the Blur Witch Project largely addresses this criticism, which I, I do think it does. It, it doesn't completely dodge the problem. I think what I want to argue is that the faux documentary style that the directors are using in the Blair Witch Project is an intentional design, much like what George Romero would do several years later in Diary of the Dead, as I mentioned in the last segment. He's using the the approach of found footage to make a comment on, you know, again, our fascination with watching tragedy unfold on kind of television screens and news. And, and that's what I'm suggesting is what the Blair Witch Project is doing, that there is a subtext to the movie that is intended to offer some commentary on the public, our need to watch other people's tragedies. Uh, and that's, that is, there's a reason for using this technique to tell this specific story. So I work as a, a criminology professor in my, you know, quote unquote, real job. I teach course on crime and media. We spend uh, a chunk or at least one lecture looking at true crime, which has been popular before modern day media, people used to go and watch people get, uh, you know, be executed or hunted in, in public squares. Netflix has its its has patented or perfected a formula for its doc true crime documentaries that seem to come out every two you know several weeks. Um, and what I would argue is that the full documentary style in Blair Witch Project is really connected to this uh, the twenty four hour news cycle that became it did start in the 1990s, but definitely kind of became the approach to, to the new cycle. That is, the Blair Witch Project was released at the end of a decade that saw the 24-hour news cycle become the common approach to, to covering any type of pressing issue. So unlike the days when I was little where you tuned in at 6 o'clock or you tuned at 11 o'clock for the news or you waited the next day for the newspaper for uh, newspapers to, to publish an article on a story, you know, CNN, when it was developed, uh, introduced this kind of 24-hour news cycle footage. The 1990s was the decade that saw people sit glued to their TV sets watching the O.J. Simpson white Ford Bronco chase. This is the same decade where millions of people tuned in for daily updates on the Menendez brother trials or the Michael Jackson trial. The Blair Witch Project's full documentary conceit really is a essential for addressing some of these issues. That is, Heather's persistent need, which her, her colleagues in the film criticize her persistent need to have to capture everything, to document everything, that importance, I would argue is kind of part of a, sub, a subtext underlying the movie, addressing, again, this, this, this public need to watch all these tragedies unfold in 24-hour news style. Now, at the end of the day, subtext is great. Is The Blair Witch Project really a good movie? Lots of people hate it, uh, whether it's a landmark film or not. My sister was not a fan of it. She hated the shaky camera style. Her complaint was that you didn't get to see anything, which I would argue is kind of the point of the film. And, and I'll admittedly, I'm a huge fan of the movie. I, I found it quite scary. It's one of the few movies as an adult that actually made me uh, made it hard for me to fall asleep at night. I genuinely think The Blair Witch Project is a scary psychological horror movie. I think Myrick and Sanchez's directors do a lot of things right. Uh, the slow burn, uh, slow burn approach is a really tricky balance. On one hand, you don't want to show too much too soon. 
but show too little too slowly and it's just plain boring. Uh, and then you're, you kind of paint yourself in a corner where you need a payoff that justifies you know, 80 to 90 minutes of nothing happening. One of my criticisms this year of, of a film that, well, on one hand, I admit in terms of its style and approach is, is somewhat innovative and that's The Outwaters. And it is uh, like Skinema Rink, which is somewhat similar in terms of its uh, surrealistic tone. The Outwaters, there's about 45 minutes of that movie that, that you can cut off, cut out, in my opinion, and the payoff just isn't enough. It's it's too much, too little, too slowly, and not enough. Uh in comparison, the, the Blair Witch Project, I think, does a good job of very methodically piling on its scares. It's, I would suggest it's horror by uh, a thousand cuts, so to speak. Most importantly, Myra and Sanchez understand one of the most basic premises of a good horror movie. Uh, that is, sometimes what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. When Heather screams, uh, I think it's about at the midway point, you know, what is that when they're being chased from their tent? That's a terrifying moment. And you see absolutely nothing. Everything in the Blair Witch Project is left to your imagination. Uh, the Blair Witch Project's ending is another illustration of what I would call minimalist horror. What makes that scene work so well is all the early painstaking efforts to establish the mythology of the Blair Witch. It is an absolutely fantastic payoff and one that shows the filmmakers had a, tre a tremendous amount of respect uh, for their audience. There's no lazy expository dialogue. Instead, Myrick and Sanchez trusted uh, the audience to piece together the story and really understand what was happening. Not surprisingly, studios like franchises. Uh, they like sequels, horror movies uh, from the days of the Universal Monsters from the 1930s and 40s, which uh, The Invisible Man, uh, The Mummy, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula all had uh, sequels. There were crossover films. So not surprisingly, the studio seeing the box office success of the Blair Witch Project, Artisan Entertainment, understandably, they, they wanted a sequel. So perhaps hoping to cash in while public awareness was high, they rushed, very much rushed into development their sequel, The Blair Witch Project 2, Book of Shadows. So original creators, Hacks and Films, and, and directors Myrick and Sanchez had, had very little to no involvement in the sequel's creative development. Artisan kind of opted to hire a first-time director and Joe Berlinger to take the reins. Uh, and, and since its release, Berlinger ha has claimed that much of his vision was actually cut from the final theatrical print. Uh, and perhaps to no one's surprise, Book of Shadows was kind of really doomed before it was ever released. Uh, now, in spite of these production issues, Joel Berlinger's concept for Book of Shadows actually wasn't a bad direction for a sequel. Now, if you're not familiar with Book of Shadows when it came out, it completely ditched the conceit of that it was a found footage movie. It actually treated the Blair Witch Project as... Uh, a film that is it was somewhat of a meta movie it uh, so in the universe of book of shadows it follows a group of people who are fans of the movie the blair witch project and then go to where the film was shot to kind of essentially we see this a lot today in what's called dark tourism people like to go to you know if you go to los angeles for example you could probably pay for tours 
uh, that'll take you around to places where celebrities have died. If you go to London, England, uh, there's probably several different Jack the Ripper tours. So it's kind of that conceit. It's It treats the, the original movie as, in fact, a movie, and that the sequel is set in a world, our world, where the Blair Witch Project exists as, as a movie, and that these are fans looking to kind of do kind of their own little tour and filming of all the sites involved in shooting that film. Uh it's not a bad idea uh, in, rea- in a reality where the original film was in fact a work of fiction, uh, which is what it does. It does kind of open the narrative up to numerous possibilities. Uh, Berlinger's direct a decision to abandon the found footage format also kind of removes a lot of the possible constraints for generating new scares. That is, we've already seen the found footage format for Blair Witch. Uh, one of the problems, in my opinion, that you see over the course of paranormal activity is that it's difficult for them to really expand the mythology and make conventional sequels when it's kind of chained or handcuffed to a found footage format. So really what I would suggest is Book of Shadows, it, the mistake wasn't not you taking a found footage approach. I don't even think the mistake of treating the first film as a movie and taking this meta approach was a bad idea, at least not you know 20 years later. But in spite of these clever you know film within a film kind of conceit, Book of Shadows if you watch the movie, it's an absolute mess. Uh, so for starters, Berlinger and uh, Dick Beeb's story suffers from several gaps in logic. The Blair Witch Project had a very coherent mythology. In comparison, its sequel, Book of Shadows, can't seem to make up its mind about what is and what is not real. Things seem to happen in the sequel for the sake of happening. Most of the performances as well range from stiff to, to really barely satisfactory. So Lanny Flaherty, who plays kind of what I would describe as the, the scene-chewing Sheriff Craven, uh, he, it's like he's acting in a very different movie. He's, you know, bottom line, he's he's terrible in this movie. Um, and he really kind of throws you out of any scenes where there could potentially be any tension, particularly by the film's final kind of reveal and conclusion. There is a chance for it to kind of stick its landing and really nail because there's a bit of a shocker surprise, but every time that actor's present in any scene, it just pretty much, uh, Book of Shadows almost feels like unintentional comedy at that point. So Book of Shadows was an absolute disaster. I've, I've tried revisiting the movie. Uh, I do a, one of the columns I do on the blog is worst movie ever. Uh, really what I'm looking at is movies where, you know, perhaps the initial expectation was high, the results were low, and years removed, can we critically, critically reevaluate that movie? Or is it a case of a movie that's so bad it's good? Blair Witch uh, Part 2, The Book of Shadows, it really isn't deserving of critical reevaluation, and it's not so bad. It's good. However, the sequel slash remake, or maybe we can call it a requel, when it was finally announced that Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett were doing a sequel to Blair Witch, which at the time, and I think this might have been, was it in 2017, the summer? It was a big deal. It was a surprise, which at that point in time with social media, there aren't a lot of really true surprises when it comes to announcements about movies. This was a huge surprise. It was, in my opinion, a big deal. I remember being quite excited. Uh, horror fans held quite readily Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett in, in fairly high esteem. 
Uh, after all, Wingard and Barrett, they're responsible for your next, the guest VHS. So when they announced that their mystery project that they had entitled The Woods was in fact a sequel to The Blair Witch Project, horror fans were understandably quite excited. And in contrast to Book of Shadows, the duo were giving fans a proper sequel using the found footage format. So Blair Witch also uh, offered fans a, a direct story connection to the film. Uh, they were doing away with that kind of meta approach. Uh, so there was a lot of anticipation. So unfortunately, you know, again, we're several years removed. Blair Witch was not a box office hit. It's not a movie that people talk about. So what went wrong? Uh, and I wouldn't say it went horribly wrong, but something went wrong. Uh, and I, again, I would argue Blair Witch is not a terrible film. In fact, Wingard and Barrett delivered a movie that really kind of, well, it absolutely significantly improves on Book of Shadows. Arguably, Blair Witch's biggest problem, however, is that it's more of a reboot than a direct sequel, which was common at the time, this idea of a requel, uh, something like a, a soft reboot. So it's, yes, it has. There is a, a narrative linking one character to the doomed Heather Donahue from the Blair Witch. Uh, but... It really seems largely as a film content to rehash the original movie. Again, it's more of a requel. And even with several genuinely scary moments, Blair Witch just can't escape the feeling. And its biggest problem is we've seen all of this before. Uh, yes, Wingard and Barrett do add a few new twists here and there. Uh, there's a good scene using a drone that gets thrown into the mix that opens up some interesting opportunities for unique scares. Uh, what's unfortunate is, well, it's, there's a lot of potential there. Like most of the unique twists to the narrative in this movie, the drone really doesn't play uh, much of a factor in the final results. Uh, aside from giving audiences a glimpse of the witch herself, the Blair Witch is really haunted by familiarity. This is, this is a movie that we've seen before many, many times. Uh, you know, it comes out at a time when we, we've seen tons of found footage movies. So really the next question is, where does the Blair Witch Project go next? Uh, can we do anything with the franchise? And we're living in a world where Hellraiser and Puppet Master movies seem to be getting released uh, decade after decade. Uh, so if, if we can get a new Children of the Corn sequel like we did earlier this year, I find it really hard to believe that we can't get another decent Blair Witch film. Uh, this is assuming that there's still public appetite for another movie. Sometimes franchises just go cold. But we saw earlier this fall with Saw 10 that A, they actually made a pretty decent Saw movie, and B, uh, audiences turned out it wasn't huge box office receipts, but Saw 10 did better at the box office than either Jigsaw or uh, Spiral from the Book of Saw did just two years earlier. So it is possible to to resurrect interest in a franchise that maybe has gone cold. Uh, but with such a well-established mythology, it is a shame to think that there isn't a potential franchise that's possible. So what are some of the possible directions for a future Blair Witch Project movie? Where does the Blair Witch Project go next? Uh, in a world where Hellraiser and Puppet Master movies keep getting released, 
uh, decades after the, the original films were released and very long after any of those movies ever saw the inside of a movie theater. It's hard to believe we can't get another good Blair Witch movie. Even just earlier this year, we, we got another Children of the Corn film. Those movies have been getting released straight to video uh, since the early 1990s. Uh, so again, it's really hard to believe that there isn't another decent Blair Witch film that can get made. Now, this is assuming that there's any public appetite for another movie. Uh, but I would suggest with a well-established mythology, which it has, it, it would be a shame to let a potential franchise slip away. And we've seen earlier this fall, in fact, that with Saw 10, Saw 10's released, I think the last proper Saw movie came out, what, in 2010? There's Jigsaw, which is a belated 2017 effort to do kind of the same thing that Blair Witch did around the same time, a soft reboot. And then there was another attempt in 2021 with uh, Chris Rock's Spiral from the Book of Saw to do a soft reboot. So Saw 10, really, there's a 13-year gap between a proper Saw film in terms of continuity and Saw 10 getting released in fall 2023. It earned the best reviews of any movie in the franchise. And while it wasn't, I wouldn't describe it as a box office sensation, it certainly proved that audiences were still willing to go to movie theaters and see a Saw movie. And it did fairly well. It exceeded the box office halls of Jigsaw and Spiral. So the question really is, is what are some of the possible directions for the Blair Witch Project? Now, following the failure of Book of Shadows, several stories kind of circulated on the internet about a potential sequel. And some of those rumors suggested that Mirak and Sanchez were considering telling the story of Ellie Kedward, that's the, the source of the Blair Witch curse. In other words, a prequel a prequel wrote. Prequels are flawed, or can be flawed. Inevitably, the prequel has to give audiences an, ex an expected ending, uh, thereby eliminating some level of suspense. So you knew when you were watching George Lucas's prequels that Anakin Skywalker had to become Darth, Darth Vader. There was no suspense there. You knew what was going to happen. Origin stories have also become, you know, kind of an increasingly lazy way to squeeze out more movies out of a franchise. Uh, I don't think we really need it uh, to see a movie uh, like Hannibal Rising to explain how Hannibal Lecter became uh, an ingenious cannibal. But the prequel route probably or may offer the best option for a new Blair Witch film. It negates any uh, debate about adopting the found footage format for starters. Furthermore, a film focused on Ellie Kedward is so more so far removed time-wise from the first Blair Witch project that wouldn't have to worry as much about pigeonholing the story to, to force connections. That is, there would be a bit of uh, narrative narrative breathing room, so to speak. It could also be left to tell its own story. So a film focused on you know the oppression of a young woman accused of practicing witchcraft, if done right, could actually be a, a fairly relevant movie in, in an era that's you know following on you know Me Too and Times Up uh, for franchise hungry studios. Ellie, an Ellie Kedward focused prequel could also carry on with, with its own sequel focused on Rustin Parr and the Burkittsville Seven. Both of these movies could produce kind of atmospheric period piece movies. Uh, now, the downside of prequels is the risk of over overexposing the Blair Witch mythology. Much of the success of Blair Witch is how much of what happens is truly unknown. Uh, that's a lot how the mythology works. So by kind of untangling some of that mythology, you do lose some of the mystique. But uh, there's, I would suggest this is probably the most viable option right now for the franchise to move over. Uh, there's definitely some evidence that this can work. Uh, the temptation to try more 
legacy sequel route like Halloween. That looked pretty tempting before Exorcist, the Exorcist Believer came out, but the Exorcist Believer, which has the same creative team behind the new Halloween trilogy, shows that uh, just because it works with one franchise doesn't mean it will, will work with another franchise. And in fact, in one of the earlier podcast episodes, I think back in August, episode four, we touched on the fact that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre released in February of 2022 on Netflix, which also tried that legacy route. It didn't work at all. Well, that concludes the sixth episode of the abominable dr welsh podcast thank you very much for joining me this uh, week uh hopefully you enjoyed our discussion about the blair witch project like i've said earlier in the podcast it's a movie that certainly polarizes horror fans if you're like my sister who is a horror movie fan you've probably fallen on one end of the extreme where you absolutely can't stand the movie uh, don't like the shaky cam, don't like that it doesn't show anything. Or if you're like me on the polar opposite extreme, I consider it to be a classic movie. I think its impact on found footage as a viable subgenre, uh, it plays a huge significant role. It's a great example of early viral marketing, and I, I just think it's a plain, you know, in terms of psychological horror, pretty scary movie. Or maybe you saw, fall somewhere in between. Uh, if you're looking for a found footage movie to watch for this Halloween and you, you have no interest in the Blair Witch Project, there's plenty to choose from. The Last Exorcist is a good one from, I believe, 2010. If uh, there's Creep on Netflix, uh, if you've got uh, a, a subscription to Netflix, there's the Hell House LLC trilogy, which is available on Shudder. I do believe either tomorrow or next week there is a prequel movie or at least a side movie or another entry to the Hell House uh uh, franchise, the original Hell House, Hell House LLC is, in my opinion, one of the better horror movies released in the last several years. Or you could go back to 2020 when Host came out, which again, I, I had that kind of ranked pretty high amongst my picks for best horror movies of 2020. Either way, thank you very much for joining me. I hope you enjoy if you're not uh, back next week with me on October 27th. I hope you enjoy your October Halloween movie season and take care. <laughs>